or deceive you, or of happiness bereave you, but I'll die and made you grieve you, oh you naughty, naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying, all the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying, all the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty, naughty men. When you want to kiss or favor, you put on your best behavior and your looks of kindness savor. Oh, you naughty, naughty men. Of love you set us dreaming, and when with hope we're teeming, we find that you are scheming. Oh, you naughty, naughty men. Of love you set us dreaming, and when with hope we're teeming, we find that you are scheming. Oh, you naughty, naughty, naughty men. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for... Sunday, February 6, 2022. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, I, I'm giggling a little because uh, last, <laughs> week's, last week's lead in music... Uh, it was confusing to some folks. I got some emails about that. And then <laughs> until the end when you explained it, and now this week's lead in music. Uh, Is I'm sure the same. <laughs> yes. So uh, hold off on those emails until you listen to the end of the show, because it'll all come into being then. So uh, I am proud to say that uh, Broadway Radio has, an, has launched our newest show, This Week in Theater, which launched yesterday. Uh, Matt Tamanini and um, Jennifer uh, started to talk about things that we don't talk about on This Week on Broadway because uh, they are focusing on the regional theaters uh, around the nation right now. They spoke to Oregon Shakespeare Festival artistic director Nataki Garrett, uh, also uh, spoke with a props master at the Contemporary Theater in Seattle, Washington. Um, Matt and Jen reviewed The Tragedy of Macbeth on Apple TV. Uh, I talked about Swept Away at Berkeley Rep and and uh, Grand Horizons in Our Town at Oslo Rep. Uh, Peter, have you ever been out to Oslo Rep? No. No, I'm so, afraid not. I've, I've certainly uh, been <laughs> to where it is and seen the building, but nothing was playing when I was there. Yeah, Matt, Matt's, uh give it uh, three thumbs up. Which makes me concerned. He's got three thumbs, but yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, no, yeah, Matt, this... is, Matt is not all thumbs, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> also, in our uh, Patreon advance feed, uh, folks who support Broadway Radio get uh, some of our shows a little bit earlier than every everybody else. Was uh, Jan Simpson's All the Drama, where uh, she reviewed, uh, not reviewed, but talked about the uh, 1998 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, How I Learned to Drive, by Paula Volgo, with a discussion. Uh, with Paula. So that is in our Patreon feed right now, and it will be released to the general public next week. You can support us on Patreon by going to broaderradio.com slash Patreon. So Peter and Michael got to see the uh, MJ, the musical, which is officially titled just MJ, uh, which is the Michael Jackson sliver of a story from what I hear. I haven't seen it yet. I'll see it next week. So Peter, why don't you get us started on MJ? 
Well, you get the usual type of drama found in shows that detail and entertain his career. I remember um, Time Magazine, when Funny Girl opened, uh, they did a cover story on Streisand and said um, that, you know, what happens in the second act when Fanny or Sophie or Jenny, citing two other musicals from 1963, reach the top. So what you get here is the usual drama found, um, the rise to the top, the hubris that accompanies it. The details that the pills are becoming a problem. The stadiums are no longer full and record sales are down. And um, a good deal of drama as the finicky numbers cruncher keeps warning that with Michael's need for excessive onstage bells and whistles, he may have to mortgage his beloved Neverland. Well, horrors. Can't we all relate to a tragedy of movie from a 38th? thousand square foot manse with 12 bedrooms and 21 bathrooms to a place that might be only half that size offer only half as many rooms or heaven forfend even fewer i mean <clears throat> new yorkers who reportedly pay an average of three thousand two hundred and thirty seven dollars a month for a studio may not have much sympathy for this horrifying fate but uh mj is a musical that's fortunate to be presented in an era where tourists drive broadway even they, however, may not shed tears for Jackson's real estate woes. Um, uh, will this be their choice of shows when they're in New York? I mean, many in chat rooms have unequivocally stated that um, all the information they've since inferred or learned from tabloid reports are all four hours of that Leaving Neverland series, that pretty damning documentary, that they wouldn't attend the show. Yeah, but you know, some don't believe um, any of the charges um, when um, Michael Jackson was found not guilty of um, the pedophile charges um, in 2005. Ironically enough, I checked and um, <clears throat> it was almost four, year late, four years later to the day that he died, four years and 12 days. So, um, so it, Better to concentrate on his life in 1992 before any of the allegations um, came to light. So what we're dealing with here is um, the dangerous tour that we hear that he took a lot of flack from the media, but we're not told what that flack is. And um, perhaps book writer Lynn Nottage hoped we'd use our imaginations and make up our own minds. Um, I don't, you know, left to our own devices. I think that Lynn Nottage, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, may well have tackled the thorny issues and legal battles that Jackson encountered. But um, uh, the title page states that MJ comes to us by special arrangement with the estate of Michael Jackson. Now, what's interesting is the typeface on that notation is half the size of the um, names of the producers, uh, more than two dozen, by the way. And yet we know that the um, uh, the estate must have had an opinion or two or 200 on what could and could not be said. So any information on what went on in Neverland will never land here. So um, so it's set up with an interviewer interviewing him. By the way, I think the interviewer is very well written. And I think one of the reasons the interviewer is very well written is because Lynn Nottage certainly has been interviewed um, a number of times countless times probably and uh, certainly knows what makes a good interviewer and what doesn't so i think she's very well written and whitney bashar plays her 
specifically um, very, very, very well. She ask the tough questions without getting too tough, without infuriating him. So that was uh, really good. Um, we want to know what drives you creatively, she says, as opposed to we want to know if you're not just the king of pop, but the king of pedophiles. So Jackson's response is always keep this about my music. And that's what the musical does. I mean, as you fully expect. Um, but, you know, even if we weren't told of what did or did not go on in Michael's dozen bedrooms. Um, there was drama to be had. What I wanted to know, and maybe, because I don't know anything about Michael Jackson, um, even after seeing the show, but um, how did the brothers and the Jackson 5 feel when Michael abandoned them and made them the Jackson 4? Um, there had to be some jealousy from at least one brother, most likely all of them. But we don't get that scene. When Michael tells his brother he wants to strike out on his own, suddenly he's just doing that. So, well, there's a little bit of that in this, right? They touch on it. I wanna, I wanna know the ramifications. I wanna know. I, I wanna hear from all four of those brothers. I wanna hear exactly what they felt if he thinks he's too big for his britches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so um, there wasn't enough to satisfy me. But um, and touching upon it, I, I, that's that's dramatic. I mean, that's amazing um, to to. Uh, I, so I, I wasn't sure if the kids are there, um, if it was the father's idea. I didn't know what happened, but um, I think there should be much more of that. You know, in a strange way, this is this reminded me very much of Judy Garland's life. You know, you, you see this lovely child giving a f phenomenal performance, just as she did in Wizard of Oz. And all the while knowing that she devolved into a, a very sad case, so, mm. you know. And um, and just as Garland was portrayed in the in the play End of the Rainbow was a sky high maintenance creatures. Um, so is Michael Jackson uh, uh, characterized as such. You know, it it's so one note in the sense that we keep on hearing over and mm. over and over again that he's a perfectionist. It has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. It goes on. You know, it just seems like. She couldn't find anything else that would please the estate. But the fact that we're supposed to say, wow, isn't it wonderful that he wants to be perfect? You know, but he really uh, simply becomes a pain in the ass, frankly, is um, so. Um, Quentin Earl Darrington plays uh, both the father and uh, the tour's director. Um, I, I, I don't know if um, Lynn Nottage wanted to show that Jackson, who was under his daddy's thumb, thumbs all eight of the fingers too. regards rob as a surrogate father and with whom he could finally argue and get his own way i don't know maybe they just want to save a salary and they did save three by not including any of the jackson sisters um his mother uh, is there uh, sincerely played by I iana george and She's there, especially after uh, the husband treats uh, little Michael abominably. She takes the tyke in her arms and sings, I'll be there to him. Actually, she really is for the rest of the show. And, and after all this, I'll be there talk. Um, and, and it's one of the few book numbers, um, though. You know, who knows? If not that you've been allowed to deal with the allegations. She could have had Jackson sing, I'm bad in a very different context, but that's not going to happen. Um, so. Um, you know, again, people are coming for the movie, you know, the fervent fans who staunchly refuse to believe that Jackson ever did anything wrong with the parade of children. He entertained night after night after night after night. will have a wonderful time um, at the performance I went to. The theater goers didn't even wait for a song to end before they started applauding. So um, 
So, you know, you're there for the music. You know, um, how many hundreds of times have critics said, if you like this show, you'll love this show. Well, if you loved any biographical jukebox musical that offered pop hits from the late 20th century, you'll like this one, too. So, um, but you're there for the music um, and you're there to see if anybody can be a good Michael Jackson. Um, all bio musicals are judged by how close the imitator resembles the real thing. And I'd say Michael uh, MJ is two thirds successful. Uh, Christian Wilson. There are two kids playing the part. I saw a kid named Christian Wilson, uh, sensational and lovable as MJ was in his formative years. I really think that Michael Jackson's performance in the Wiz, whatever we think of the Wiz movie is terrific and um, very, very nice. So, um, now, I didn't like Tavon Old's sample as much as the teenage Michael, um, teenage Michael, even though he moves very, very well. Uh, he doesn't have much appeal because he makes his face look sour and angry almost every moment he's on stage. But of course, the bulk of the show belongs to Miles Frost as the adult, if, if you want to consider Michael Jackson an adult. Um, he gets that ethereal nature, the slumped shoulders um, that support the head that tilts forward as a 45 degree angle, almost like a giraffe and the lowered eyelids, the inscrutable face, the semi-falsetto whisper, the shy smiles. Um, let's talk about the plastic surgery on his nose. And that should have been omitted because I mean, his nose never shrinks an iota during the performance. How could it, you know? So um, what I also found interesting is that the, which is really happening now in these shows is they don't list the songs in the order in which they perform. They just um, cite them alphabetically. Uh, I guess in that way, there's some surprise in what you're going to hear next. Um, um, and that's about a, the biggest surprise you'll get at MJ. Most of the songs have done his performance numbers and, and Christopher Wheeldon, who did the choreography and the direction, it was as good a production, I think, as anyone could have hoped for imagine. Uh, he was helped by associates who did um, work with him. But, you know, if Michael Jackson felt that perfection was all that important, I don't think he would have cared very much for MJ. Uh, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I think that the vast majority of people who will want to see this show and buy tickets for it will be coming for the music and the choreography and the performances. And in that respect, I think they will be very, very, very pleased. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that Christopher Wilden did a beautiful job. I've always admired his work. Uh, his past work has been very different uh, in a very different style than here. So I was somewhat curious about how he would do with this kind of uh, music and dancing. Although, I mean, he may have done this before and I just hadn't seen it. Uh, but anyway, uh, great, great job. Uh, David Holsenberg is billed as music supervisor, um, orchestrator and arranger. And Jason Michael Webb as music director, um, orchestrations and arrangements. Uh, so I think really that if you go for that, I, I can't imagine you being disappointed. And on, on top of that, it's quite a production in terms of the lighting, especially and the production values, lighting projections and the production values. Um, uh, the audience seemed quite ecstatic almost throughout. Uh, and I think, how can I say that? I think that the people, I suspect that since most people will be coming for those things, that many, many people really will not care about the storytelling and the book. And I think that's just as well, because uh, let me say 
let me uh, say preemptively here, uh, no one is a greater admirer uh, of Lynn Nottage than I am for her works such as Ruined and Sweat and Intimate Apparel, which will come up later in, in our discussion, <laughs> and Clyde's, very recently Clyde's, uh, by the way, Meet Vera Stark, uh, you know, mm. quite, quite a body of work, mm-hmm. excellent work. And I just was quite shocked at what a poor job I thought she did here, even given the many pitfalls of a bio musical. So hard to avoid the cliches, uh, the exposition. Mm-hmm. I thought she did a horrendously bad job with the exposition. And the, the ironic thing is here uh, is that, as Peter mentioned, there is this character of the interviewer played by Whitney Bashore. Um, I, I think it, that if uh Ms. Nottage had figured out a way to give that character most of the exposition, you know, in, in asking her questions of Michael Jackson. Um, I think that would have made it a lot less clunky. But here you have people like the Quentin Earl Darrington character as the the tour director saying things like, well, Michael, this is the first time in history that any black man is blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And you just say, oh, come on, come on, Lynn Nottage, really? Uh, I, I really was surprised, really was surprised at her. Uh, some, uh, someone I read, you know, everyone has an opinion and something I read online somewhere, not by a professional critic, but someone said that he felt that her Pulitzer should be rescinded because of having, <laughs> for having written this. Well, I think that's a, a mm-hmm. bit much. And of mm-hmm. course, they weren't being serious, but mm-hmm. they were just trying to make the point of how extremely poor the writing of the book is here. And I think that's too bad. Um, yes, uh, as far as the whole elephant in the room thing that Peter alluded to, uh, uh, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion as to whether or not it's fine that. Uh, that it avoids all of that. And of course they, they did make the right decision in setting it uh, at a time period, right before, right before all of those allegations uh, came to light. Uh, But, you know, I I think one mistake that they made, and this, this is quite, quite strange to me. There is in, believe it or not, in, in the playbill, there is a one paragraph sort of bio of michael mm-hmm. jackson mm-hmm. uh you know a summary of his life that 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 just uh focuses only on the good things including his um his uh his work as a compassionate and prolific humanitarian uh, um, uh michael set a new standard of generosity for other entertainers well that's certainly true in in the sense that they're saying it but then what about the you know, what about the other stuff, the the elephant in the room? So I, I don't know if they uh, I mean, I can't believe they felt the need to include that paragraph anyway. Uh, and I think that was a mistake for whatever it's worth. Um, uh, the the cast is amazing. Miles Frost is is everything you've heard. I, w- I was also distracted by the fact that he's got such a uh, a striking um uh, his facial features are so strong and so striking that uh, in that sense, there was a, a disconnect every time he came on because we know that even by that point, Michael Jackson didn't look anything like that. Uh, but if you can suspend your disbelief there, yes, the, the voice, uh, the, the, the posture, the, um, the, uh, 
the the body language, all of that is is spot on. I thought, and I I just uh, I, as Peter alluded, um, the, the audience response on the night I went was through the roof. Uh, I was interested that um, was this the case uh, when you went, Peter? Uh, th- one of the most uh, vociferous responses was to "I'll be there." Um, mm. Which is, you know, not a power ballot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but uh, that that actress did such a great job with it. Actress and singer did such a beautiful job with it, and it is a beautiful. I've always loved the song. I just don't think it's the kind that normally would cause people to whoop and scream. Um, but I think maybe they were responding to the fact that uh, y- you know th- they just love seeing someone being nice to michael <laughs> well and, the and emotion sh- is what carries it yeah yes um, yeah, yeah 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 so i i uh, yes that did get very heartfelt response and um and it did indicate to me that people might have responded to a book musical so right exactly and i had the same thought um quentin earl darrington uh, as i said that there was so many uh pitfalls written into both of his roles as the tour director and as the father joe joe jackson uh but i'm so i'm glad they got somebody as great as he is uh you know as wonderful Mm -hmm. an actor Mm -hmm. as he Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. to do those roles because if not i think it would have been very difficult to take and um I'm I'm fascinated to see if this show will make it, uh, and and if it doesn't, I, I'm not even sure if what that proves because it could still be partly because of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. uh, it could be anything. Uh, you know, we'll never know if it was, you know, because a lot of people don't want to see it because of all these those allegations that are not addressed here at all uh or not if it has nothing to do with that but the night i went it certainly felt like a uh, it certainly felt like a monster hit on the night mm-hmm, that i went mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet you know um <laughs> some of these biographical musicals that um got the same type of reaction um and i can think of one recently that was at the same theater um just didn't go so who knows yeah and there's no controversy with the share show per se so um and, and there is here i don't know you know i as I, did i mention this about felicia rashad when she entered in skeleton crew that she got terrific entrance applause yes. and a lot of people said mm-hmm. that you know they wouldn't go see her because of the cosby thing yeah so right. who knows you know i mean all these people say i'm not going and i am telling you i am not going may very well go so uh it, it's hard to other than anecdotal evidence, it's hard to say how the show is going to do because they're not releasing individual show grosses I know. Qu- quite yeah. yet. Um, but the word of mouth on MJ is pretty good. Uh, the There is this uh, seemingly arm, online army of MJ, uh, Michael Jackson supporters who... Uh-huh. Anybody who ever mentions the allegations against Michael Jackson immediately gets swarmed with uh, mm-hmm. with replies from these people, uh, and, and it's it's very unpleasant. So, mm. well, uh, to be fair, he was exonerated in a court of law. He was, you know. You know so uh, we have to say that. No, absolutely. And wait a minute, exonerated. He was found not guilty of all the charges, but then there was the twenty three million dollar. Settlement. settlement for the mm-hmm. other thing, the twenty three uh-huh. million dollars settlement. Yeah. Yeah. OK, <laughs> so um, so 
the MJ uh, whether or not they sell tickets is going to it's going to be hard to see until uh, we actually get some hard numbers from the Broadway League. Uh, all we can do is see that uh, word of mouth is very good on the show, and that the uh, and that the crowds seem to be there for right now. So we'll see what happens. I, I'm I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it uh, this week coming up. Um, I'm interested. In if they will take a page out of uh, uh, of um, Jersey Boys and kind of uh, market it in that respect, uh, let's you know just market it directly to the fans and market the the music and and you know kind of bring people that are not traditionally Broadway fans to the theater. So we'll see what happens mm-hmm. there. So. Uh, Michael, you took a trip back to uh, 1983 to see another <laughs> another kid who dances up a storm. Over at City Center Encores, the 2022 season has the tap dance kid. Uh, Michael, you saw it, so let us uh, know what you think. Yeah, I went in totally cold for this show. I never saw the original, don't have the album. And, uh, you know, I could have prepared, but sometimes I like to see a show cold like that an old show to see how i react to it although um i guess this is a revised version uh, a significantly revised version so uh, one has to keep that in mind with, with judging it i thought it was um one of the worst constructed oh. musicals oh. Uh, that i've ever seen uh which is too bad um there's a lot of good stuff in it uh, most notably the music by Henry Krieger. And I had to look it up. I, I, w- I couldn't remember if this show came before or after Dreamgirls. Uh, but uh, Dreamgirls opened in December of 81 and Tap Dance Kid in December of 83. So that answers that question. Um, uh, the lyrics uh, many people have identified as not on the level <laughs> of the lyrics for dream girls um the the the, the lyrics here are by robert lorick and the book by charles blackwell I, I would say that's the main problem uh the lyrics in the book they're trying to tell this story of of this uh young boy who wants to become a tap dancer much against the wishes of his father uh, who wants him to become a lawyer like him um uh, one thing that's interesting here is seeing these shows uh uh seeing this show one night after i saw mj uh it just i guess this is a coincidence uh there were great similarities in the characters of the father in this show mm, yeah, that's right. and and also uh, the father in MJ, Joe Jackson. Uh, they even had some lines that were almost verbatim wow. uh, uh, to the effect of, um, uh, you know, black people have to fight for everything that we get. And uh, and the, the rest of the world will never be as hard. I mean, the, the rest of the world will be much harder on you than I ever am. Uh, lines to those effect. Um, and it was just interesting to see that in two different shows, uh, two nights in a row. As I said, that was just complete coincidence. But and, you know, that's a valuable point to be made. And there is a lot of value in this in the general plot here i just think it's so poorly constructed and poorly written uh one interesting thing is that the um the action of the of the show 
of the story has been moved back um, in this revised version. It was originally when it opened in 1983, apparently it was meant to take place in quote unquote, the present, uh, you know, at that time. And now it's, it's supposed to be in the, uh, in the fifties. And I think uh, it seemed to me that that was a good idea because a lot of the issues that are dealt with uh, would make more sense in an earlier time. Um, uh, the character of the daughter, the sister, uh, she is, uh, you know, for example, the father's against her wearing pants and things like that. And just his whole view of her as a, as a woman, uh, as a girl who she is the one who wants to be a lawyer. And his whole view of that seemed more palatable to me in the fifties than in the eighties. So I think that was a good idea, but I, I don't, um, I don't know. I think maybe I'll try to research the original version a little more and see how it is. But my, my thought was that the, the construction of it was was just really really poor and unfortunately i have to say in this case uh, it's rare that you can see a show and and think that you identify the direction as very lacking but that was the case here and it's kenny leon who i have um seen some really great shows that he's directed and and some not so great ones in the past so i never really felt like i got a bead on him as to how a good a director i think he is but uh maybe his maybe it depends partly on who he's working with and how much they bring to the table and how much they can do on their own uh in this case this is a new york city center on course production and their rehearsal periods are famously very limited although i think a little longer than they used to be but still quite limited maybe uh mr leon was not able to work well under under that very limited uh, uh, frame of rehearsal period uh, because there were just things in this show that I- I'm surprised that I saw on a professional stage, including actors not projecting, uh, not being able to be heard, even though they have body mics on. Uh, there were many lines that I uh, that were said in a conversational tone and with no energy uh, that would have been appropriate if the if the actors had a camera four, five feet away from them, but not, you know, in a barn like city center. So I was, I was kind of amazed at that. And then there were also tremendous pauses, the the tremendous pauses between lines the the pacing of the show was horrendously off. Uh, It was, there were times when I, I couldn't believe how long it took between one line and the next. And I I might say, I saw the show on, uh, on uh, Saturday uh, and it had already, had uh i guess two or three performances uh i'm sorry i saw it on friday but it already had two two or three performances and um even some of the reviews that i later read alluded to the fact that it seemed like it was under rehearsed so i think the show that i saw was probably even tighter and quicker than what people saw on wednesday or thursday night um so that was all very very disappointing a lot of incredibly talented people in it including joshua henry who through sheer force of talent uh did a great job within his 11 o'clock number uh even though I felt like it really wasn't motivated by the script and not that well written, but again, just his, his, 
his voice and his acting ability and his talent just really uh, made managed to make that a showstopper. The audience went kind of crazy for that number. And the rest of the cast, uh, Tracy Beezer, DeWitt Fleming Jr., uh, Alexander Bello was the, the wonderful actor uh, playing young Willie. Uh, Trevor Jackson, uh, a real find for me. He, he had a tremendous amount of charm and talent in the role of Dipsy. Uh, Shahadi Wright-Joseph, Chance Smith, and Adrienne Walker. Those were the other leads and supporting players. Uh, so I, uh, well, anyway, uh, it, it was interesting to me because, as I say, I, I had no idea what this show was beforehand. And, and I guess I can see now why it was not a hit. Michael, I'm interested uh, if you uh, would consider going to the Film and Tape Archive and seeing the original production. Oh, yeah. Uh, that occurred to me also. I, uh, do we know for a fact that it's there? or No, I don't yeah. know for a fact that but it's it there. It did run a long time. Um, uh, it wasn't a hit in the sense that it didn't pay back, but it ran, um, well, it ran 500, 500 performances, right? Changed theaters. Yeah, uh, as well. In fact, in fact, I didn't see it until it moved to the Minskoff. I remember, but I remember so vividly, and I'd like to know how they handled this, Michael. Uh, it was so wonderful in the original production when he took the tram from Roosevelt Island to uh, New York City. And they had a number of, of panels on which there were photographs, and as he was going from Roosevelt Island, each of the panels changed, and there were like four dozen of them, as I recall. I may be overstating that. Mm. But um, as as he got closer and closer to New York City, those pictures changed from Roosevelt Island uh, to landmarks in New York City, and it really ex expressed the excitement the kid had coming into the city. Um, what happened in this production? Oh, well, that was a dance number. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, they 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 have yeah, they tend sure. to have very minimal production values. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And yes, you're right. I I shouldn't have said it wasn't a hit. Six hundred and sixty nine performances. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's no. not bad. Not I don't really think, not bad. Yeah. yeah, I don't think anybody made any money, but nevertheless, um, right, it did run around. Yeah, yeah and it's uh, and I mean, I I guess it was perceived as not perceived as not a hit in the sense that they started revising it uh, you right, know, as soon as right, it, as soon as it closed, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, not a hit and, and right, like not really well re remembered in, mm -hmm. in, in general, com certainly compared to, well, certainly compared to dream girls. Um, anyway. uh, two Tony awards, a number of uh, a drama desk nomination, the theater yeah. world award, yeah. uh, two Tony award wins, but uh, a, no a number of nominations as well. Yeah. So uh, it, it did have its uh, its fans. Its day. Its day. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think that um, uh, that we should uh, talk is that we've. Uh, I think that we've really raised our expectations of encores, and, and not. Uh -huh. and, you know, uh, we're so used to seeing just such polished, very ready to go, transfer to Broadway next week type of productions, whereas they really don't have a ton of time for uh rehearsal and uh and who who knows what has happened there but but certainly i think that if we reflect upon back upon the first uh sets of encores that we saw maybe uh maybe this is not so wonder rehearsed as we as we make it out to be today yeah but i uh, if you had heard these people talking on stage i mean they were talking in this volume this is this is yeah. the way the girl. This is the the way the girl was talking to her brother on stage. Uh, 
And you know, you can only and you can only you can only turn up the mic so far. <laughs> no, this it often happens when you pull uh, television and and film actors onto a stage. I don't know if these folks are television and film actors, but uh, certainly <laughs> it, it's a much different medium. So uh, let's transition into some uh, intimate apparel. Uh, we previewed it last week. It's playing at the Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center downstairs. Uh, Michael and Peter have gotten a chance to see it. Uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on intimate apparel? Well, I am so glad that uh, Ricky and Gordon decided to cl- collaborate with Lynn Nottage on turning her beautiful play into an opera. Uh, I mean, it could have been a, a musical too, and that would have been fine. Uh, but they decided to do it as an opera. And certainly it fits in terms of the emotions involved. Um, I, uh, you know, how you feel about this is going to depend largely on how you react to that kind of musical language um, that uh, an American opera would tend to be written in as opposed to a a musical. And a lot of people are not going to like it uh, for that reason, I think, because they're just not used to that kind of musical language, nor may they be used to um, uh, dialogue being sung in quite in this fashion. Of course, there are, you know, there are all those European pop operas that have lots of sung dialogue, uh, Les Mis, etc. But I, I don't think it's the quite the same kind of sung dialogue as you have here. Um, it is it is very much an opera, uh, and the voices are eminently operatic. Uh, the the two leads I have to mention right away: Kirsten Piper Brown is Esther. And uh, the fellow, this fellow uh, who Ricky and Gordon particularly raved about uh, when we had him on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, Justin Austin, uh, who plays George Armstrong. Um, also, Arnold Livingston Geis as Mr. Marks, uh, the wonderful role of Mr. Marks. They're all fantastic. And I will, I will, will say this. Um, you will probably never see an opera acted as well as this one is under the direction of Bartlett share. I don't know where these people came from. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I, well, what I mean by that is I, I was not familiar with any of them. I do have some familiar familiarity with opera, uh, although not as much as I, I don't go as frequently as I used to, but I think there's a, you know, there are people who sing at the Met and the major opera houses. And then there's a whole other group, uh, you know, large group of opera singers who um, sing elsewhere in, in more intimate venues and, and regional companies. And I suppose that, that, that that's where all these people came from, but they're absolutely fantastic. I mean, the acting is, uh, you know, in in general, the the level of acting in opera has improved greatly over the decades. I think, and if you go to see a, a, a an opera at the Met now, for example, I think you would find that the acting is generally far better than it was in yeah, the nineteen fifties. But uh, still, it's uh, here we have acting that's every bit at the level of non-operatic acting, you know, as if these people, one gets the feeling that all of these, uh, these performers could have done just as well in a production of the original straight play version of intimate apparel. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, uh, that is the, one of the most 
fabulous aspects of this production. Um, it's scored only for two pianos, uh, which in a way might be a little bit of a disappointment in not having more or- orchestral colors, but it certainly does help the uh the diction, you know, understanding all of the lyrics, all of the libretto. And in case you have a problem with that anyway, never fear, because there are (laughs) titles projected on the back wall uh, throughout. So that's not going to be an issue uh, for you at all, if you're in case you're worried about that. it uh, it really was a very worthy project that, uh, that I'm glad that this commission came uh, from the Metropolitan Opera and that they collaborated with Lincoln Center to produce this very intimate opera of intimate apparel mm-hmm. in the Mitzi Newhouse <laughs> Theater. Um, it's it's uh, one of the most creative pr- uh, productions that you're going to see, I think. Uh, it's certainly not not run the mill uh and bravo to everyone who who is involved in it really so peter uh what are your thoughts about it well first off um uh michael uh does not give himself enough credit because he really is quite an authority on opera and um uh here's pete the parvenu who uh <laughs> whose knowledge of opera is phantom of the opera and the three penny opera and that's about it it's the plot of this play that really interests me um it takes so long for opera to um, make its points. Um, lines of dialogue take forever to uh, to be sung. But right. Yeah. And I guess it gives you time to digest everything. That's quite nice. But what's really powerful to me is still the story. And that is the fact that this is a story of how religion uh, can really drive people apart. I mean, one of the issues that uh, Mr. Marx has, he's uh, the guy who runs the fabric store, is that he's really attracted, very much attracted to um, our heroine, Esther, and she's attracted to him, but it's a love that cannot be, partly because of color, but we really get the impression it has more to do with religion. Mm. He's also going to be in an arranged marriage, but you really feel bad for these two people when this comes between them. So... um, so there's that. Um, the other factor um, is that um, she also has a chance to be in a lesbian relationship, and um, she doesn't take that, even though the woman's very tender to her. It's amazing because the woman's her employer, and uh, she's so tender. And but again, uh, conventions here rather than religion um, keep them from uh, happening. And it's really quite a thing for for a white woman in that era to um, make a pass. Uh, you should pardon the expression to. Um, to a, a black woman. So we also get the impression that because um, she is um, a, a very shy virgin, that that's what turns her husband against her. The story is very much like um, the day after the fair or the excellent musical after the fair that was made from it, uh, in which we have a Cyrano de Bergerac type of situation where um, she's illiterate and um, two, two friends of hers, including the white woman, write letters. Um, and so she's really getting the man under false pretense senses um we find out of course that <laughs> he's done the same thing so um it's a strange gift of the magi type of situation there but um yes it's extraordinarily well acted and yes i did enjoy it very very much um and i do notice that um in this uh version and in um the garden of the fincy cantinis which uh, he did with michael corey um that 
uh, Ricky Ingram goes ta- always takes the high road. I mean, it seems when whenever there's um, any type of uh, moment that he can go high with a note, um, he certainly goes for it. So which brings us to Finzi Continuous. And that's um, what I was going to talk about earlier um, with Michael Corey, who I think wrote the lyrics first. Why? Because they rhyme. Um, I don't think that happens much in opera, right, Michael? Correct. I mean, this is really um, it could have been a musical in the sense that these are lines that really rhyme Um, and perfectly, too, by the way, which is Michael Corey's uh, want, um, I'm happy to say. So um, so in terms of the Garden Finzi Continuous, if I may switch to that for a moment, again, music by Ricky and Gordon. Um, This is a very moving story about um, Jews in Italy. You know, we don't think of Jews being in Italy particularly, but they're Jews in Italy during the Second World War when Mussolini has allied himself with Hitler. And um, is there going to be a problem? Now, some of the story really involves unrequited love because um, we do have our um, hero, um, Giorgio, um, which interests me from the vantage point that the guy who wrote the original story in um, was named Giorgio as well. <laughs> um, so um, he wrote the novel in 1962. It became a very famous movie in um, the early 70s. I think it won the Oscars best it foreign did. film. Yeah, okay. Yes. Um, but it, it really is about a, 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 a young man who um, loves um, a woman from afar, and um, she is not inclined to give him the time of day. Because after all, she's a Fincy Contini and he's not. Um, he comes from a lower class. So, um, and as W. Somerset Mom has taught us, the only love that lasts is unrequited love. And um, certainly this unrequited love uh, takes a lot of the story. I will tell you, though, um, this is a story of people who do not see what is coming and will pay the price for it. I would say at the end of the opera, what is said, by the uh, mother is one of the most powerful lines I've ever heard because she has no idea what's coming. She should. She's wearing an armband with a star of David on it. I know what line you're going to say. That was, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, okay. (laughs) But, but it affected you too. Yes. Yes. It was really, really something to show her naivete of what was going uh, to happen. And um, uh, it really packed such a wallop, but anyway, um, what can I say? The wonderful, I, I remember one time when Peter Brook was doing that Carmen at Lincoln center, I was passing by a, um, a booth at Bryan park where they were selling tickets at the time at half price. And there Carmen was up and I was so excited. Oh, wow. I really wanted to see it, but it was impossible to get in here. It was half price. I couldn't believe it. I got to Lincoln center and found out my ticket was for the New York city opera production of Carmen. It wasn't Peter Brooks, Carmen. So I went and saw the opera, but which a lot of people say was really the first musical. But here's the thing. I was astonished at the voices. Oh, my God. You know, we don't get those voices on Broadway. Um, you know, So I was flabbergasted, you know, again, somebody who does no opera. So I was flabbergasted here by the uh, the um, voices as well. Anthony Chiara Mataro uh, as Giorgio and Rachel Blaustein as the object of his affection. Um, were very, very fine. Um, and um, I thought they were quite, quite potent in, in what they were doing. So um, it, it, I was a stranger in a strange land uh, both times this week and um, and was glad to make the visit. Um, but uh, I still have a feeling I am going to like musicals much more than I am going to like opera. <laughs> 
Well, I think, you know, that especially those of us who grow up on it, uh, there is something to be said, <laughs> something a lot, a lot to be said for uh, the, the well done uh, combination of spoken dialogue uh, into song. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, you know, it's a different feel. It's a completely different feel. Michael, did you grow up in a house where opera was um, played a lot? No, uh, no, oh. I came uh, I came upon it on my own. I remember in junior high school, um, we had to do a project for French class. Uh, and uh, I focused on Carmen, on the opera Carmen, because oh. uh, I thought I had heard some of the music on, you know, in TV commercials and things like that. And I uh, went to the library and I took out the Maria Callas recording and I just fell in love with it. Yeah, uh, but I that's the greatest opera to start with, you know, because it's so bouncy and so and it does have uh, not that recording because there were two different versions of it. But uh, the Carmen as written has lots of spoken dialogue in it. Yes, I do know that. And the other thing, too, I remember watching a TV variety show once, which started with the overture um, and I didn't know what it was. And years later, when I heard Carmen Jones, <laughs> that's when I realized <laughs> that was that overture. And I was th it's a thrilling overture. Yes. Um, so, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So that is uh, the Garden of the Finzini Cantinis. <laughs> Finzi. <laughs> Oh man, I got it wrong again. Ah, oh. yeah, so that was the Garden of the Finzi Contini's. Oh, right. by the way, you know one thing I didn't research is, of course, Contini is the last name of the character in in nine, and yeah, yeah. and also eight and a half, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if I mean, I mean though that's a fictional character, so I don't know mm -hmm. where what the relation is there. Well, I uh, before we were started recording, I I, I said that maybe Finzi Cantini should be a drink that served in some sort of <laughs> Hell's Kitchen bar, but maybe uh, in the in the uh, lobby of the uh, National Yiddish Theater. You know, it sort of does sound like Asti Spumanti, doesn't it? <laughs> Mart Martini well, and Rosti Asti Spumanti. <laughs> one of those fizzy drinks. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. See. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, Michael, you got over to uh, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York City, and saw a movie of Oliver, uh, part of the To Save and Pro Project, the 18th <laughs> MoMA International Festival of Film Preservation. So, tell us about this. Yeah, I saw the film of Oliver, uh, the, yeah. the film of Oliver, <laughs> as far as I know, uh, 1968, best picture. Uh, God, what a great movie it is. Uh, so, so well done. Directed by someone who had never directed a musical before named uh, Sir Carol Reed, who uh, I don't know how old I was before I figured out that he was a man because, uh. uh, uh, you know, Carol is not often a, <laughs> a a male name in this country, but it is in, in Britain. And so I the, that movie came out when I was 11 or so. And I, I was the target audience for it, needless to say. And I did see it then and I fell in love with it and I got the album and I've loved it ever since then. But I always thought Carol Reed 
was a woman. And I thought, oh, how great that a woman directed this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this musical. But no, it's, it's Sir Carol Reed, who was uh, well known for very, very different kinds mm-hmm. of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beautiful job. And also, and just phenomenal choreography by Anna White, who, look her up if you don't know all about her she uh made her broadway debut as a dancer in the original production of finian's rainbow in 1947 uh as a replacement in that show and then she danced in several other shows um uh all for love regina uh, arms and the girl guys and dolls uh oh the, the this was must have been a city center revival. Um, and then she started choreographing. She choreographed the guys and dolls in 55. I guess that was again, city center. Uh, she choreographed Finian's rainbow in, in also in 55, I guess that was also city center. <laughs> uh, and um, then uh, I guess the came her first big, huge wow moment, which was the original production of the music man which she choreographed on Broadway. And then she went on to whoop up, take me along, Irma LaDuce, let it ride. I had a ball, half a sixpence, MAME, uh, 1776, et cetera. Um, just an incredible career. And she, you know, people r- realized early on, uh, you know, I- I'm not sure how exactly it happened that she was really, really great at choreographing huge production numbers for film musicals. Um, And no one, I would say, did it better than her, as you can see in in Oliver and the Music Man specifically. Uh, Also, the main movie, uh, whatever whatever (laughs) major flaws that film has, I would say the choreography is quite wonderful, Uh, especially the way the, the main number, the title number was adapted to the screen. So she really was an incredible, incredible uh, talent who uh, born March 24th, 1922 and died April 8th, 2005. Um, the movie of Oliver is just, I, I think it holds up beautifully well there. I'm happy to say it wasn't a large audience, but it wasn't empty. Uh, there, there was a decent amount of people for a very cold um Saturday afternoon at MoMA, and there were a lot of kids, uh, a fair and fair number of kids who had been brought by their parents, and I wanted to go over to those parents and thank them, <laughs> uh, you know, for picking such a wonderful, uh, perhaps introduction, you know, to to musical film uh, for these kids, and uh, it seemed like everyone really loved it. Everyone was very attentive. They're, uh, and very well behaved. And it was a beautiful restoration, a 4K digital restoration with spectacular uh, picture and stereo sound, um, including the uh, the overture, uh, the intermission, intermission music and the exit music were all in there. And the overture uh, starts, you know, uh, 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 over a, a blank screen, you know, before before the before the film it proper starts. And the sound was so great. I went with our friend Kevin McInerney and he said, I've never heard sound this great in my life in, in a movie theater. <laughs> uh, um, because the orchestra, the, the orchestrations are beautiful. Everything about it was just so well done. They spent tremendous amounts of money on this movie, where which was filmed at mostly at Shepperton Studios in England. Um, 
it was a, a I guess a co-production of British and American, and they got the best people, you know, from both places. They got Carol Reed from Britain, uh, and then from America they got Anna White and also Johnny Green uh, to do the the music, the, you know, the musical supervision. Uh, so it, it's it, I, I, if you if you've never seen it, you please check it out. It uh, I, I think it deserved its. Academy Award is best picture of that year. The same year as Funny Girl, by the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but which is another excellent film adaptation. That was a banner year. And then things kind of went to mm -hmm. hell right after mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, for movie musicals. But this one is, is still a jewel, I think. Right. So uh, do you know if, uh, if this, this reworked version, this, Redigitized 4K version is going to be uh, be able to be seen in other theaters or things like that. I'm not sure if this pro project is, it would seem silly just to do it just for once. Well, I don't know, and nor did I check if it has been uh, issued in 4K on Blu-ray or in you know in other mm. or for streaming. But I imagine you know they they wouldn't just do it to show it at MoMA. You know, yeah. To your point. Uh, so if it's not available on blu-ray or or through uh, you know some streaming platform I, I i would say that it probably will be <laughs> all right so uh just uh one quick thing before we get on to trivia and our musical moment have you guys looked at the calendar for april you mean the Broadway calendar? And yeah, the, the off-Broadway calendar. The uh, well, just work on the Broadway calendar. I don't think we have time to see anything other than Broadway shows in <laughs> in April. Let's I hope. mean, it's uh, looking like seventeen openings in April. Uh, that, that's going to be crazy. So I'm just encouraging you now to get some sleep and <laughs> bulk up on your carbs and. Uh, <laughs> And you know it's Never a marathon. Need to worry about me bulking up. Oh, exactly. On yeah. I've been I've been doing it for thirty years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Getting ready for that April twenty twenty two season. Guy on the prize. <laughs> so, yeah, that's going to be crazy. So, before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I would want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. You can subscribe uh, to. This Week on Broadway by clicking the link there. Of course, uh, you don't have to get us an Apple Podcast. There's many ways to get us. Uh, you can get us an iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Uh, if you want to get a transcript of uh, this or any of our Broadway Radio shows, email transcripts at broadwayradio.com and mention which episode it is, and we'll send you out a transcript as well. So, uh, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? What two characters in a musical were natives of France but eventually moved to South Carolina? Well, in the second act of Sunday in the Park with George, Marie tells us that her mother, Dot, moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and we know the reason she did is because her husband, Louis, got a job there. Steve Bell mentioned Mr. and Mrs. from the same show, and one could say in a way he's right, for Dot and Louie were Mr. and Mrs., but he meant the actual couple known as Mr. and Mrs., who strike me as quintessentially American. Still, seconds later, Dot and Louie occurred to him, and he, so he gets the first place honor. Tony Janicki followed and pointed out that actually three characters were natives of France who made the trip. 
for Marie was born in France just before they took off. He's right. No wonder. No wonder that the Tony Awards were named for Tony Janicki. So <laughs> following those were Josh Israel, Brigadude, Isaac Blevins, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question, a character in an 80s musical had a foreign name. If you translate that name into English, you'll get the name of a Kander and Ebb song. What's the foreign name, the American song name, and the musicals? All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, I've noticed uh, that a uh, frequent subject of discussion online and on uh, Facebook groups and various chat rooms and stuff is jukebox musicals. And first of all, what exactly it means uh, to call something a jukebox musical. I, uh, In my opinion, there are three I think <laughs> three uh, basic categories. There are reviews, um, including composer mm. reviews and, mm. and, and others, uh, some reviews that have all of the music by one composer or lyricist or whatever, and then others that mix uh, the, the songs of various, like Black and Blue is an example of the, the latter. Um, then there are biomusicals, such as Jersey Boys and Beautiful and now MJ. And uh, then there's the kind where existing songs are stuck into a newly constructed fictional plot, uh, such as Mamma Mia. So... Uh, I think, you know, I guess jukebox musical is the umbrella term where pre-existing music is used. But but I think it's important to remember that there are very different kinds of subgenres within that. And then somebody asked uh, the reason this came up in this case was somebody asked, what was the first jukebox musical? And all kinds of answers started coming. But uh, I, I think this is the first time I ever realized this, that um one could argue that the first musicals, uh, quote unquote, that were ever created were jukebox musicals. Uh, now, for example, The Black Crook uh, is often identified as the first musical, the first American musical, and that uh, opened in 1866. In New York, it played at Niblo's Garden, which was down on Broadway at Prince Street. And um, according to uh, what I'm reading here, uh, it was the first popular piece that conforms to the modern notion of a musical. Uh, the book is by Charles M. Barris. The music selected and arranged by Thomas Baker consists mostly of adaptations but it included some new songs composed for the piece, notably You Naughty, Naughty Men. And that, <laughs> folks, <laughs> was, was the song uh, that began our show today. So if, in case you were like, what the hell is that? Uh, that's what it was. Uh, one of the apparently relatively few new songs written for what was basically a jukebox musical. And then I thought, well, you know, but you can probably go back even further because the beggar's opera sure. yeah. <laughs> is a ballad opera in three acts written in 1728 by John Gay with music arranged by Johann Christoph Pepusch. It is one of the watershed plays in Augustine drama and the only example of the once thriving genre of satirical ballad opera 
to remain popular today. Ballad operas were satiric musical plays that used some of the conventions of opera, but without recitative, because they had spoken dialogue. Uh, the lyrics of the airs in the piece are set to popular broadsheet ballads, opera arias, church hymns, and folk tunes of the time. So again, another jukebox musical except of course no there were no jukeboxes but it was pre <laughs> pre-existing music and our, our closing song uh i had thought that um that the music of the beggar's opera was lost but uh apparently that's not quite true i, I think that some of the melodies have survived uh if not the arrangements and uh, you know not not fully written out uh but some of the melodies have survived and i i I think this is quite a beautiful song that we're ending with. It's called Over the Hills and Far Away uh, from the Beggar's Opera. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, uh, however you feel about jukebox musicals, quote unquote, they've been around for a really, really long time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.